And thank you all once again for being here today. Uh, as a church, we are in the midst of something that we are calling the Jesus Series. I know it's a very creative name, very creative title that we came up with here. Uh, but we're calling this the Jesus Series, and we started this in the fall, and we are going through the life of Jesus in a mostly chronological order. We're going through the Gospels, the books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the four biographies about Jesus. And we're doing this because, as a church, we love Jesus, right? Can we admit that? Like, we love Jesus. All right, about 72% of you love Jesus. That's great. The rest of us are like, we're working on it, which is great. No, we love Jesus, and we're trying to get to know him better, right? There are a lot of ideas out there about Jesus, and there are movies, and there are TV shows, and there are all kinds of different books that have been written about him, but let's go back to the source and really get to know Jesus with other people. Those of you who are doing the Jesus series reading plan over the course of this past week, uh, I don't know if you noticed this, but you read quite a bit about sin. Did you notice that? You read about sin issues and warnings about people who lead us into sin. You read about uh, things that can cause us to sin. You read about how sin can come from within. You read about how to handle somebody else's sins. You read a lot about sin this week. And so today, in worship, we're going to talk about one of your favorite topics, we're going to talk about sin. How about that? It's your favorite three-letter word, sin. We're going to talk about sin this morning because there are things that we can do about sin. Now, there are some things that we can't do about sin, but there are things that we can do about sin. Now, if we're going to talk about sin, the first thing that we need to do is define sin. Growing up in a Christian household, growing up going to church, I was taught about sin, and I was given a definition of sin, and what I was taught, maybe you were taught this too, those of you who grew up in a church, I was taught that sin is anything I do that displeases God. That's what I was taught. Sin is anything I do that displeases God, and I'm not supposed to sin, and so I don't want to sin, and so I need to figure out what displeases God, and then not do that stuff, right? And for the most part, that's pretty intuitive, right? Like, oh, man, I don't know. Does God want me to kill other people? No, he doesn't. That would displease God, right? And so for the most part, that's intuitive. Not all of it is intuitive. For the most part, that's intuitive. So I was like, okay, if I'm going to do something that displeases God, I better not do that thing. Sin is anything we do that displeases God. But then the definition expanded. Sin is anything we do or say that displeases God. Okay, I got to watch out for that. It's not just what I do, it's also my words and what I say. And does that mean I'm not supposed to call my little brother a butthead? But what if he's acting like a butthead? Can I say that? Nope. That would displease God, right? By the way, that was a term we used in the 80s, okay? That would displease God. So anything I do or anything I say. So I can't say stuff and I can't do stuff. All right, I don't want to sin, so I'm not going to say anything and I'm not going to do anything. That displeases God. But then the definition expands sin is anything that we do or say, or think that displeases God. Ah, I'm done for. I can't do it. I mean, what a definition. Sin is anything that we do, or say, or think that displeases God. Now, that is a potentially anxiety-producing definition about sin, but it's a valid definition of sin. Thinking of sin in that way, it's anything that we, we do or say or think that displeases God, it should draw us to the reality that none of us are sinless. It should bring us to that reality and it cause that awareness that none of us are sinless. How are you going to make it through a day without doing anything or without saying anything or without thinking anything that displeases God? How are you going to make it through a day? How are you going to make it through an hour 
I mean, maybe when you're sleeping you can do it, but your waking hours, how are you going to make it? And so when we think of sin that way, when we define sin in that way, it should draw us to this conclusion that we all are sinners, and that's the bad news, but the good news is that it's not hopeless, right? I'm going to list for you three things that we can do about sin, but here's one thing that we can't do. We cannot absolve ourselves of our sins, all right? That's a fancy church word, absolves. We can't wash them away. We can't get rid of them. We can't nullify sin ourselves. That's something that we can't do. The good news is that there is someone who can, and it's Jesus. <laughs> Jesus does for us what we cannot do for ourselves, and Jesus has died on the cross in my place, in your place, and he offers us this gift, this gift of absolution. And so we are sinners we can't absolve ourselves, but Jesus can, and Jesus does. There's your good news. Okay, so back to the definition of sin. Sin, we can think of it as anything that we do or say or think that displeases God. Here's another way to think about sin. We talk about sin in terms of crossing boundaries. God, in His infinite wisdom, in His amazing love and compassion for us, He has given us rules. He has given us these boundaries to live within, right? And the rules that God gives us, they exist for our own benefit. Do you realize every commandment, every rule that God gives is for your personal benefit, is for your flourishing, but not just you personally, for the flourishing and betterment of humankind. Do you realize this about God? God is on your side. God is not trying to limit you by putting you in boundaries. No, He wants to see you thrive. He wants to see you flourish. And so He has given to us, humankind, boundaries to live within. He's given us a series of thou shalts and thou shalt nots. And when we step outside of God's boundaries, that's sin. When we step outside of those boundaries, it's not just wrong. I mean, it is wrong. But it's not just wrong. It's also dangerous foolish, detrimental. Those sin behaviors, it's not just wrong, it's also detrimental and foolish and dangerous. Got it? Should I say it? Should I rearrange the order one more time? We got it, right? When you step outside of those boundaries, watch out. God is saying, I want you to live within these boundaries because God knows this world is a messed up, broken place. Let me give you these boundaries to live within for your own sake. And we say, now nah, I'm good, and we step outside of those boundaries. And so crossing God's boundaries, that's another way to define or think about sin. We can also talk about sin as going on to the wrong path, all right? All throughout Scripture, both the Old Testament and the New, we're talking about the righteous path and walking with God and righteousness. And there's this idea of going along a path that's leading us closer and closer to God. There is a right path, but then there are many other wrong paths. And sin is being knocked off the right path and landing on the wrong path. Coming along the path and finding a stumbling block or something that causes us to sin, and then, oh, I'm not on that righteous path anymore. And that's another way to think about sin is being diverted off the right path. Last one I'll give you, and you can define sin in a lot of different ways. Last one I'll give you today is we can think about sin as debt, something that we owe to God. We are in debt I mean, think about it this way. When somebody sins against you, when somebody wrongs you, don't you feel as if they owe you something? 
there's a debt there. You have wronged me, and now you owe me. There's a debt. You owe me, at the very least, an, apolo an apology, right? You borrowed my car, and you wrecked it. You owe me a new car or a nice fat check, one or the other. You choose, right? You owe me. You made something wrong. Now make it right. You owe me. And so we can think of sin as debt. And what we'll see from Scripture is that it is a debt that we cannot pay off ourselves. But there is one who can pay it off and who has paid it off. Can anybody guess who I'm talking about? Hey, you all knew it, right? right? When they ask you a question at church, the answer is usually Jesus, right? Yeah, it's Jesus. He's paid off our debt. He can absolve our sins. He has done for us what we could not do for ourselves. And so there are things that we can't do about sin, but there are things that we, we can do about sin. We're going to open up the Bible today, looking at Matthew 18. You've got some verses there in your bulletin. But if you have your Bible, a Bible app, we were looking at Matthew 18. And I'm going to begin with verse 7. Now, in context here, Jesus has just been warning about the dangers of misleading people. He says, woe to you. If anyone's going to mislead or cause a little one to sin, it would be better for that person to have a giant stone tied around their neck and have them thrown into the river, thrown into the water to drown, okay? So it's a warning about causing other people to sin. Then in verse 7, Jesus says, woe to the world because of its stumbling blocks, Again, this idea that we're on the righteous path, the right path with God, and then something trips us up, causes us to stumble, and diverts us onto the wrong path. So woe to the stumbling blocks. Do you like these act-outs that I do for you? Oh, I'm stumbling. I practice these at home. Woe to the world because of its stumbling blocks. For it is inevitable that stumbling blocks come, but woe to that man through whom the stumbling block comes. So woe to those of you who create these sin opportunities. Woe to you who are creating these temptations. Woe to you if you're trying to mislead someone. Or whether that misleading is intentional or unintentional. Woe to you if you are one of these people that creates stumbling blocks. And so at first, Jesus is speaking about stumbling blocks that come from outside, external stumbling blocks. They don't come from in here. They come from outside. But then Jesus changes direction, talks about these stumbling blocks that we find within. Verse 8. Are you ready for this? This is where things get intense. Jesus says, by the way, disclaimer, words of Jesus, I'm just reading them from the Bible. I did not make this stuff up. <clears throat> words of Jesus. If your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, fall into sin, cut it off and throw it from you. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than to have two hands or two feet and be cast into the eternal fire. Ooh. Verse 9, if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out, throw it from you. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than have two eyes and be cast to the fiery hell. Is that what they're talking about in children's church behind me? Are they doing that? I don't think so, right? This is some serious stuff that Jesus is talking about here. It's almost as if Jesus takes sin very seriously. Once upon a time, about 15 years ago, I had a conversation with a pastor, and uh, 
I am somebody, and, and you guys know this about me, a lot of you know this about me, I take the Bible literally, and if the Bible says it, and if it's presented in literal context, I choose to take it literally. Other people don't, and that's just how it is. I feel like we err on the side of literal. Unless you can show me why I shouldn't read it literally, then I'm going to read it literally. That's where I have landed. But I was talking with a pastor who had a different view, who had a more figurative view of Scripture, where we can hold things more figuratively, and there's room for interpretation and all this kind of stuff. And so he held to that view, and I held to this view. And so he was giving me a little bit of a um, hard time for my interpretation of Scripture. So, well, you're a literalist. How do you deal with this passage? And we opened up to Matthew 18. He says, hey, you're a literalist. Jesus says, if your hand is causing you to sin, cut it off and throw it from you. Do you think Jesus literally wants us to do that? And Jesus says to pluck out your eye and throw it away if it's causing you to sin. Does that mean we should literally be doing that? I guess he got me, right? <laughs> he made his point. Well, no, no, no. Look at what it actually says. Look at what Jesus actually said. Sometimes, and here's a fun little bonus sermon for you. Sometimes, if you're having a struggle with interpretation, how am I supposed to interpret this passage? Why don't you actually go to it and just keep reading? <laughs> Sometimes, if you just keep reading, the passage will begin to make more sense. So let's look. You can absolutely read this literally, because what is Jesus literally saying here? He's saying it is literally better to go through life missing a hand or a foot or an eye than it is to spend eternity in hell. Wouldn't you agree? It's literally true. And so as I had that friendly debate with that pastor friend of mine, I, I, I said that, and that was the end of the conversation, because that's it. I mean, it is literally better. If that's what it takes, if that's what it takes, it's literally better to go through life crippled than to spend eternity in hell. Does anyone disagree? And show of hands if you disagree, right? As tough as this saying is, this shows us how seriously Jesus takes the issue of sin. And so I told you, I'm going to give you a few things, three things that you can do about sin in your own life. I'm going to, well, things you can do about sin in your own life and in the lives of others, all right? So let me give you the first thing that you can do about sin. Are you ready? Note takers, are you ready? You got this? Here's the first thing you can do about sin. Stop. Got it? Nobody's writing that down. Stop sinning. Well, of course. It's easy. You don't need to write that down. Stop. That's the first thing you can do. And that may sound ridiculous. What kind of sermon is this? Stop sinning? Yeah, stop. But here's why I make this point. There's too many of us, many of us Christians who do something, and we know it's sin. We know it's not what God wants for us. We know it displeases God. We know it's dangerous. We know it's not beneficial. We know it's foolish. But we just keep doing it. We make these excuses for ourselves. So how about this? Stop. If you're sinning, stop. Some of us Christians are guilty of this thing called cheap grace. Sometimes we refer to it as cheap grace. And we figure, hey, well, Jesus has died for all my sins, and Jesus forgives me, and so I can just kind of do whatever I want, and everybody's a sinner anyway, so let's play fast and loose with these boundaries here. Everybody's a sinner. Jesus died for my sins. I can do what I want. No. No, no, no. It's not just about that. Remember what sin is. It's, it's putting ourselves in a vulnerable position. It's dangerous. It's foolish. It's detrimental. No, 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 no. Jesus takes the issue of sin seriously. And so the first thing that you can do about your own sins is you can, you can stop. A couple days ago, on the 19th, if you're doing the Jesus series reading, you read about this, this occasion, and it's a, 
a very famous interaction that Jesus has with the Pharisees, and, and they bring to him this woman who's been caught in the act of adultery, and they say, we're all law commands that you stone to death people who commit this sin. And Jesus says quite famously, he says, okay, well, whoever's sinless among you, throw the first stone. Oh, don't you love it when Jesus says that? Whoever's sinless, throw the first stone. They all drop their stones, and they walk away. And Jesus says to the woman, where are the people who have condemned you? They're gone, sir. He says, well, then neither do I condemn you. Now go and leave your life of sin. In other words, stop. Jesus doesn't say, okay, well, go on back and do whatever you're doing, okay? Love the one you're with and just have a good time out there, all right? No. He says, I forgive you, but stop. Got it? Stop. Years ago, I was listening to a guy give a talk about addiction, and this is a man who came out of addiction, and uh, there were some questions from the audience, and so he gave a little talk, and then there were some questions, and uh, the one question was, well, how did you stop? How did you break this cycle? Because there's different programs you can do, and there's AA, and there's NA, and there's a Celebrate Recovery, and there's all different kinds of recovery programs, different methods, and 12-step, 13-step, all these different methods that you can do, and so look, how did you do it? And so what he shared was, I just stopped. I just stopped. And then he elaborated on that. Whatever it is that's going to help you stop, do that thing. Find something. Find a system that's going to help you stop doing that thing you know you're not supposed to be doing. But ultimately, it comes down to just, you have to stop. So if we're sinning, one thing that we can do is we can stop sinning. Let's continue on. And so we're in Matthew 18. I'm going to jump to verse 15 because here Jesus begins to talk about how we should respond when other people are sinning. This is in your bulletin. I'm going to read it from my Bible here. It says, if your brother sins, and that's a key phrase, brother, if someone in your own fellowship community, your own Christian community, if a fellow brother or sister, right, somebody in that community, if they sin, here's how you should handle it, right? And this is important to note. Because Jesus is not giving us a formula for how we should treat when other people sin who are outside of the Christian community. No, he's like, no this, is, this is about your brothers and your sisters. He says, if your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. Now, some tra- I'm reading from the New American Standard. Some translations say, if a brother sins against you, as in if a brother wrongs you. But regardless, if this is a general sin issue, if someone has sinned against you, here's what you do. You go... And you talk to that person in private. Exactly, right? But is that what we do when we've been wronged? Is that what we do when we see somebody else sinning in our culture? <laughs> no. Oh, man, Jimmy over here sinning. sinning. I'm not going to talk to Jimmy, but I'm going to tell everybody else about Jimmy. Can you believe this guy and what he's doing? <laughs> we don't talk to people. We talk about them. Man, it's such a problem. Jesus saying, don't do that. If someone in your life is sinning, if they're, if they're crossing God's boundaries, if they're putting themselves in a vulnerable spot, in a dangerous spot, you go and talk to that person. Don't talk about that person. You go and talk to that person. Just you. Keep it private. Don't broadcast their sin to other people. You talk just to that person. That's what you do. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. That's what you do first. Have a conversation, one-on-one. Have that conversation. See if you can illuminate the situation. See if that person understands. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you. So by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. All right? 
In our culture, we have this term intervention. You realize what an intervention is. It's when a group of people get together and say, hey, we need to talk to you about something. And so it's kind of the same idea. You need to organize a mini intervention type situation. Get one or two people with you. So let's all sit down together and talk about this issue. Let's talk about this together. Now, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. Now we're bringing in a bigger group of people. Tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. And so what Jesus is saying is you've got options. If you see somebody else sinning, you're not helpless in that situation. You are allowed to confront that person. Maybe confront's too strong of a word. You're allowed to talk to that person first in private. If that doesn't work, you can tag in some friends, right? A safe environment. We're all friends. We all want what's best for you. You can do that. If they don't listen to that person, you can tag in the whole church. And if they don't listen to any of you, you're still going to love that person. Jesus says, you treat them like a tax collector or a Gentile, which doesn't mean treat them poorly. It means they're no longer a part of that fellowship that you have. They're no longer part of that common bond in Christ, but you still treat them well, just like you would a tax collector or a Gentile. So here's what you can do about the sins of other people, okay? You can. I'm going to use this word, and then we're going to talk about it. You can correct. You can correct. When you see somebody else sinning and you turn a blind eye to it, it's as if you're allowing them to just exist in this dangerous situation. And I know we Christians, we're so, you know, we don't want to be judgmental. So it's like, well, it's not my place to judge. And I know I've got somebody I care about and I know they're doing the wrong thing, but I don't want to bring it up because they don't want to judge and I don't want to get into it because that would be a tough conversation and it's not going to go well. So I'm not even going to bring, no, you can correct. But here's the thing. If you're going to have a conversation like this, your heart better be in the right place. Now, we're taught in Scripture that we need to speak the truth in love. So if you see someone who's sinned against you or they're just sinning in general and you want to have that conversation of correction, you better be sure your heart's in the right place. If you can't have, listen, if you can't have that conversation out of a place of love and compassion, don't have it. You wait until you get yourself to a place of love and compassion for that person, then you can have that conversation. Let's also keep in mind what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mountain. He said, don't be focused on these specks in other people's eyes when all the time there's a plank, a large board in your own eye, okay? In other words, Jesus says, if you want to help correct somebody, you can, but first make sure your life's not a mess. If there's some big sin issue in your own life, take care of that first, right? Regardless, we're given this, we're given this model, that we can, we're not helpless when we see other people sin. You go and talk to that person. If they don't listen, bring in some other people to help you. And if they don't listen, bring the whole church in on it, right? We talked about this passage a little bit at men's group on Wednesday evening. And uh, I heard some stories and I've heard other stories about this type of thing taking place in a church setting and where people are kind of like in a Sunday morning worship service and some sin issue is brought up and it's a big serious thing and it's an awkward thing. And I don't think we'll ever do that type of thing here as a church. If it ever gets to that point, we would have like an off Sunday morning some other time, have a church meeting so we could address issues like that. But regardless, this is what we're taught to do if we see someone who's struggling outside of God's boundaries, living in sin. That men's group this past week, I shared with the guys that I have been through this process I've made it through step one of this process where someone has sinned and I attempt to talk to them privately. I've been through part two of this process. I've never made it to part three of the process. There are things you can do about sin. There are things you can't do. You can set up a time to have a conversation and meet with that person 
You can't force them to acknowledge any wrongdoing. Don't you know that already? When somebody wrongs you? I mean, think about it. Someone sins, not just in general, but sins against you. You can't force them to realize that. Let me sit you down and tell you all the things that you've done that are wrong to me. They, they might not receive any of that. That's beyond your control. But you can have that conversation. Something else that came up in men's group this past week. You know, I shared the fact that I'm in kind of a, a tricky spot as a pastor. And that when I reach out to someone to talk to them about a sin issue, it kind of, boop, their radar goes up. Oh, why is the pastor reaching out to me? <laughs> All right? Especially if that person knows that they're living in the midst of some kind of a sin issue. And I will share with you, you guys look trustworthy, I will share with you that over the years, our 11 plus years as a church, there have been occasions where people have left our church simply because I requested a meeting. I'm not talking to that guy. I'm going to leave instead, right? I can't do anything about that. What I can do is arrange that meeting. What I can do is attempt to reach out. What I can do is bring some other trustworthy, loyal friends in the mix. What I can do are those things, but I can't force anybody to repent or to acknowledge wrongdoing. And so just know that. You're not helpless when it comes to sin. In your own life, you can stop. In the lives of others, you have permission from Jesus to correct with love and from a place of compassion. And so Jesus has given these instructions, and then Peter has a question. Verse 21, then Peter came and said to him, Lord, well, how often shall, I, shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? You know, Lord, you're talking about when I see somebody, a brother, somebody who's in the fellowship, somebody who's a fellow believer that sins against me, and I should have a meeting with them and then have other people come in on that meeting and then bring it to the whole church. Well, what if this person just keeps sinning against me? How many times, God? How many times should I forgive? How many times, Jesus, should I put myself in this vulnerable position where someone's just going to hurt me and hurt me and hurt me? How many times should I forgive? Now, before we look at Christ's answer, I want to create some delineation here, all right? Because one thing all of us have in common in this room is that we've all been wronged by somebody. And we've all had to do the work of forgiveness at some point in our lives. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe you haven't been wronged by somebody, but you will be. If it hasn't happened to you, it will. And we've all had to go through that difficult process of forgiveness. And I just want to clarify one point before we move on. That forgiving someone doesn't mean you let that person back into your life. And not necessarily. You can forgive from a distance. Forgiveness does not always equal, hey, restoration of the relationship. Does not always equal that. Forgiveness can be separate from that. And so Peter asked this question, how many times should I forgive this person? Up to seven? Seven feels like a lot. Seven's a good number. How about seven? He's like, no. I do not say seven times, but up to 70 times seven. Uh, a lot. <laughs> that equals a lot. I mean, in that culture, in that time, that's just a really big number. It's like we're not counting anymore. Just keep forgiving. For this reason, and now Jesus launches into this wonderful parable. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. Now, I don't want to spoil this parable for you, but I'll tell you as we get into it that the king is God, okay? The king represents God. So he's settling accounts with his slaves, when he had begun to settle them, the one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. And so a talent was a unit of, of weight. I think it was, I forget how much it was. It was very, very heavy. Basically, what Jesus is saying is this man owed the king an amount of money that he would never pay back. 
If he had his whole life to work as hard as he could, he would never raise enough money to pay this king back, all right? That's the situation. Verse 25, but since he did not have the means to repay, the Lord commanded him to be sold along with his wife and children and all that he had and repayment to be made. Okay, you can't pay me back, then I'm going to sell you, I'm going to sell your wife, I'm going to sell your children so we can get this money back. And so the slave fell to the ground, prostrated himself before him saying, have patience with me and I will repay everything. And the Lord of the slave felt compassion and released him and forgave the debt. You can't pay me back? Okay, I'll cancel the debt. That's what God offers to do for us in Jesus Christ. It's a beautiful story of forgiveness. This is what God has done for us. But, oh boy. But that slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii, which wasn't much money at all, and he seized him and began to choke him, saying, pay back what you owe. So his fellow slave fell to the ground and began to plead with him, saying, have patience with me and I will repay you. But he was unwilling and went and threw him in prison until he should pay back what was owed. You see the picture that Jesus is creating here? You know, Peter's asked the question, well, how much time should I forgive people? He's establishing this idea. Do you realize how much God has forgiven you? Do you realize the debt that God is paying off for you? So, verse 31, when his fellow slaves saw what happened, they were deeply grieved, and they came and reported to the Lord all that happened. Then summoning him, his Lord said to him, you wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not have also mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I have mercy on you? And his Lord, moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. My heavenly Father, words of Jesus, I didn't make this up, it's in your Bible, words of Jesus. My heavenly Father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart forgiveness. Three things that you could do about sin. In your own life, you can stop. You see other people who are sinning, you can correct. The third thing that you can do, it's actually something that you must do, and it's forgive. When somebody sins against you, you must forgive. Forgiveness has nothing to do with whether or not that person deserves it or has earned it. No, no, no. Forgiveness is canceling their debt. You don't owe me anymore. I forgive you. This is what you can do. And so I would ask you to dwell on these issues of sin in your own life and in the lives of those who are around you. Is there something in your own life, and you know you're doing it, and you know it's outside of God's boundaries, and you know it displeases God, and you know it's dangerous, and you know it's a thou shalt not thing, but you're doing it anyway? Well, just stop excusing that. Just stop excusing that and make the choice. I'm not going to do this anymore. I'm going to go and sin no more. But in the lives of others, if you see somebody else that's sinning and somebody else that's doing something dangerously, I want to encourage you to have the courage to address that person. You know, once you're at a place where you can speak to that person with love and with compassion, go and have a conversation with that person. You can't force them 
to own their wrongdoing. But you can attempt to show them the light. You can attempt to have that conversation. And if somebody sins specifically against you, you can and must forgive for all of us. And God has forgiven us for so much. All of us have been forgiven, so we need to forgive our fellow servants, our fellow human beings in this world. There's this, this fact I learned many years ago, and after I learned it, I just wanted to share it with as many people as I could over and over again. When I was in Bible college, I learned what Jesus said on the cross just before he died, just before Jesus commits his spirit to Father God. He speaks one word in Greek, and it's often translated as, it is finished, which sounds very dramatic, doesn't it? And it makes, I mean, when you're doing a movie about the life of Jesus, it is finished is such a dramatic last words of Christ. But what he said, according to Scripture, according to the original Greek, is tetelestai, which does not translate to it is finished. Tetelestai means the debt is paid in full. Jesus on that cross paid for our debt in full. He paid for it. And so we are not hopeless when it comes to the issue of sin. When sin happens in our own lives, we can stop. When sin is happening in the lives of other peoples, we can correct. And when we have been wronged, we can and must forgive. Amen? Please stand as you are able as we close our worship service in prayer. Jesus, first and foremost, we thank you for doing for us what we could not do for ourselves. You have paid off the debt that we owe to Father God. You have offered us the absolution of our sins. And so, Lord, we bring you our heartfelt thanks and our praise for all that you have done and all that you are. Father God, give us the courage to see clearly Give us the courage to identify sin issues in our own lives. Give us the clarity to see sin issues in the lives of others. And give us the courage to respond appropriately. Father God, we believe that you truly desire what's best for each one of us. You want to see us flourishing. You want to see us live a fruitful, productive, and blessed life. And so give us the courage to live within your boundaries. Lord Jesus Christ, once again, we thank you for the time that you've given us this morning. We thank you for this worship service experience. And now that our worship service is coming to its end, we pray that you would allow our worship of you to continue. Father God, let us worship you with our lives. Let us worship you by the way that we love and serve you and by the way that we love and serve one another. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.